Thank you so much, Dustin. Thank you, you guys, for your worship to the Lord this morning. It's just beautiful to be in here and be able to do this together. If you got a bulletin on your way in, if you grabbed one or if you had one sort of shoved in your face and you couldn't help but take one, uh, go ahead and open that. Inside is a, uh, a page for sermon notes. And as you look at that, and as Seth has mentioned in the welcome time, you can see that this morning's sermon is largely about missions uh, or about the mission of the church. And I just want to announce a few things that are coming your way here in the next, oh, six weeks uh, that dovetail with this theme. First of all, today, uh, after the 11 o'clock service, uh, in, I think it's in this room, uh, there is a missions lunch that will serve as a report uh, for our Kenya team's trip, uh, church planting trip um, to, uh, to Bondo, Kenya this summer. So they're going to come and, and give us the, all the details about what uh, God did in their midst and the way in which uh, they united as a team uh, in the cause of seeing a church planted there uh, in Kenya. So if you want to get on board with that, if you want to come to that lunch, maybe you had friends that went on the trip and you've never really gotten the full report, um, you'll be able to do that today after church. Uh, on the 23rd of September, which is a month or so um, away, we will be having a, a, a total, sort of a global uh, debrief from our summer missionaries. We had people go literally all over the world this summer. Uh, and at the evening time on the 23rd, Sunday night, about 5 o'clock, around some dessert and coffee, uh, we're going to hear about what went on around the world, different uh, uh, people going different places, serving with different agencies. Uh, so that will be a great encouragement. And that's actually going to dovetail with uh, that insert that you see uh, regarding the, the Compassion Experience. So maybe you guys are familiar with the Ministry of Compassion International. Maybe you're not. Whether you are or you're, you're not, the Compassion Experience is going to be something you're going to want to participate in. Uh, we're going to have about a 50 by 100 foot trailer on the northwest side of our parking lot. Uh, this is going to be open to the entire community and really this whole surrounding area. Uh, it's something that Compassion has done for a number of years. It's immersive. It's interactive. If you want to see what it's like uh, for a child who grows up in a developing country with no hope or no way out of the cycle of poverty and what Compassion does to lift them out of that, you can come walk through the Compassion experience. Uh, it'll be a neat thing. It's for all ages. You can sign up through Compassion on their website. You can just show up and they'll work you in uh, to the line. But uh, we want to just encourage everyone to participate with that. You'll also be given an opportunity to sponsor a Compassion child if you've never done that before. Uh, that's a great ministry for your whole family to participate in, praying for a child, writing letters, um, providing uh, birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, those kinds of things. But here's where it gets even cooler. All of the Compassion children that you're going to have the opportunity to um, sponsor this time around, because we've hosted Compassion Sundays and Compassion Artists over the years and different, at different times, but all the children that are going to be offered to our church this time around are going to be in Haiti, and, and they're going to be in programs who are led by uh, uh, graduates of Steps Seminary, who is, which is that's an agency that we have partnered very closely with over the years. So we see this kind of synergy coming together with what Step is doing and with what maybe has already been going on with Compassion. Um, so that's an exciting thing. That will give you ultimately the opportunity, you or your family, to potentially go visit one of your Compassion kids there uh, in Haiti at one of the centers uh, that's established or that's being established in the years to come. And then from there, one more thing, Hang with me. October 14th, 
Wawa Jean Baptiste, who's the president of uh, Step Seminary, will be at our church. He'll be preaching in our morning services. Um, and he hasn't been here for a couple of years, but he's a great communicator, uh, just a delightful man. We're blessed to be able to host him uh, and to get a, a good update on what's going on uh, with STEP. So a little bit of uh, a broad announcement regarding missions activity here at Faith, uh, but again, that dovetails with what uh, we're going to be covering uh, this morning. Now, the first Sunday of August, took a little break last week uh, because of Mark's sermon out of Luke chapter 7, but the first Sunday of August, I I began a short sermon series on the church. And I suppose there are a dozen or so motivations behind this kind of series, but one overarching motivation is this. To the extent that we are on the same page with what we're doing here at Faith Bible, at being this called-out assembly, at being the church, the more common our understanding of that, the better chance we have at being faithful to what the Bible describes when it describes the church. So said another way, it's really good for us to be in agreement with our basic identity as a people. It's good for us to align with why we gather together and commit to one another and partner in the gospel. So in seeking some clarity, we've established several things. We said first in the initial week, we said that the church is a people, not a place. So churches are able to exist anywhere there are people because a building does not make a church. The church is a called out people. Buildings are great. Our building's great. It helps us do ministry. It helps us serve our community. But for 2,000 years, lots of churches existed without buildings, and that's because the church is a people. You are the church. So when you commit to a local church then, You are being called into an environment where God is going to minister to you primarily through your relationship with his people. So think about this with me now. When you commit to a church, you're not committing to the charisma of a preacher. You're not committing to a a slick organization full of appealing ministries. Not a set of programs that your kids really like or, or a facility that you find quite lovely. No, You are being called into a community of people. You're being joined to a family, a a group of people that love Christ and together want to bring him glory. That's what we're doing here at Faith Bible. So the church is a people, not a place. Secondly, we said that the church is built on the word of God. God's word is our sure foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. So Christ and his gospel are what we are told to build our church upon. That's what God's word tells us. And what that ultimately means is that it is Christ who is the main thing in the church. So not the music or the programming or anything else. It is Christ who is the cornerstone. Because we don't have a chance with all of our differences and all of our dysfunction, with all of our individual preferences, we have no chance to be the church if Christ is not the main thing, if he's not the cornerstone. And so what I use to to frame all of this content, the content of the first two weeks of our study, is the realization or, or perhaps the freeing confession that the church, our church, is imperfect. We're imperfect. 
And what we've said is the imperfection of the church is actually a grace from God because it allows other imperfect people to come and get in on what God is doing in and through the church. If the church were perfect, no one could ever feel welcome here. But since it's not perfect, anyone can feel welcome here. Our imperfection allows us to invite all those looking to Christ as Savior into our ranks. When you're preaching through a series, one thing that often happens is you get email. And one bright spot in the email train is people that send you jokes. Uh, I'm starting to understand more and more where Mark gets all these jokes. They're coming from you, as, <laughs> as corny as they may be. And um, I got a joke a couple of weeks ago, and I've been kind of thinking, okay, where am I going to fit this in? I'm just going to fit it in here. Uh, I'm not sure it fits, but hey, we're going to go for it. And you maybe have heard it. It's about a man who was stranded on a deserted island. And after a year, he was finally rescued. And before they left the island, he said to his rescuers, now, let me show you where I lived. And so they walked to a clearing, and he, and he showed them his hut. And then they noticed an, another hut structure some ways off. And they said, what's that building? And he said, oh, that's my church. Well, then they noticed another building beyond that, and they said, well, then what's that building over there? And he said, well, that's my old church. <laughs> and there are several points to be made maybe from that joke, but, but the one that I'm going to drill down on here just for a second is most of the time, we can't even get along with ourselves. And so we need to decide up front that we're not going to let the imperfections of others stand in the way of our commitment to God's people. We're just not. The first week of our study, I quoted from the Screwtape Letters, a book by C.S. Lewis. I'm just going to do that briefly again this morning. Again, the, the context for the book Screwtape Letters is a senior demon named Screwtape telling a demon in training, Wormwood, how to torment and tempt a potential subject. And he tells him at one point in the book, he says, play up the disappointment that people feel when they attend church. He says, make this man notice the voices out of tune around him and the odd clothes and the cheap Christian jewelry and how so many of them are overweight or unattractive. Then he will believe that because some of these people look ridiculous, that their religion must also be ridiculous. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that or not. Maybe you know somebody that would. Somebody that stumbles over their thinking that, you know, Christians are just goofy. Or people that think, or, or, or are frankly shocked by the problems in the lives of some of the Christians they may know, or some of the news stories that are coming through the media. And maybe if you're here, maybe you're sort of a pre-Christian, or you're sort of checking this thing out, and you're just going, man, the guy up front doesn't even sound very smart. You know, th this can't be true. This Christian message can't be true because these people, they're just really not all that impressive. And what you have to see is that this is how God's work. God, this is how God works. He doesn't want people to be attracted to our beauty, but to his. He, he puts his glory in broken instruments because he wants people more interested in divine truth than in physical or intellectual impressiveness. He wants people more interested in committing to a people that love him than simply being part of a cool club. Because the truth is, Christianity, Christianity is a really lame hobby. If it's just something you got going on on the side, sort of halfway engaged in, 
Man, there are better things you could do with your life and time. It's a lame hobby, but it is a beautiful life. If it's something you give your whole heart to, if it's something you surrender to, it's a beautiful life. It's an abundant life. And maybe you're here and you've been playing the game and Christianity, church, whatever, it just sort of exists on the periphery. Even coming to church is going through the motions. You don't ever really listen. You don't really even engage. You're only here half the time anyway. I challenge you to put that away and walk into the life that Christ actually is laying out for you. Look to him. Look to his sacrifice. Confess your sins before him. Admit your need and be saved. I know we saved the gospel presentation for the end of the sermon. I want to put it kind of here at the beginning. I want you to know if you're here and and you don't know Jesus, you can know him simply by laying your life down in front of him, appealing for his mercy and his grace, and entering into this, this beautiful life that is the Christian life. But we're not impressive. Know that. We're not an impressive people. Our ranks are ordinary people saved by an impressive and a great God. And within that, we arrive at this next question in our series. Why do we exist? Why does the church exist? We're going to look this morning at a very familiar verse. We're going to dissect it a little bit. My hope is that we can understand more fully what it means to be a church that knows why it exists, that knows its mission. This is Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read verses 18 through 20. You might already have it memorized and don't even need uh, to open and read your Bible. But let's look at it together. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes these words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts today. And so from these three verses, five ideas that we're going to examine together. The power behind the mission of the church, the posture of that mission, the product of the mission, what it produces, the practice of it, and then our partner in the mission. Power, posture, product, practice, and partner. But first, real succinctly, the heading there in your notes, the mission of the church is blank. What do we put in the blank there? Well, to say it in a simple but biblical way, the mission of the church is growth. It's expansion. Let me just repeat the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8, where he says to his disciples, be my witnesses. And then he tells them where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This message, this church that I'm building, Jesus says, it is going to expand It's going to expand in the city. It's going to expand in the region. It's going to expand in the country. Oh, it's actually going to expand globally. That's the heart and mission of Jesus to his disciples, is that it would grow. Now, some churches get so caught up in growth that they just lose all of their bearings. Their decision-making becomes very pragmatic. They find ways to sort of excuse everything they do by saying, well, it's causing growth. Or it's helping us grow. People are coming. Look at the crowd. Problem is, what you win people with is what you win them to. And if you bring them in with entertainment and fluff, well, you better sustain that. 
If you bring them in with messages that are more pep talks than they are gospel, well, you've got to sustain that. And there are some large churches who have, who have mastered the art of growth, but visibly drawing a large crowd isn't exactly what growth means. So when we fill out that little blank and say growth, what I'm, I'm not saying that bigger is better. That's not the point. The point is growth. The point is expansion. The point is spiritual growth. It's growth in our love for Jesus. Growth in our love for one another. Growth in our knowledge of the word. Growth in our impact in our area. Lots of different layers of growth. Not saying bigger is better. Just saying the mission of the church is expansion. More on that as we go. Let's get into our outline and look how the mission of the church is accomplished. First, we have to see there is power behind the mission. Look back at verse 18. How does it start? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's how it starts. And so let's agree, with that sort of proclamation, it really doesn't matter what comes next, does it? Whatever comes next, you can totally get on board with. It's going to happen. Why? Because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. The Great Commission starts with a great announcement. And that announcement is, since the gospel is true, and since Christ has once for all died for our sins and risen from the grave, all authority belongs to him. Now, in recent years, I've taught through the book of Mark a few times, and because of that, it has become a, a default book for me to, to study and to grow in my worship of Jesus. I love the book of Mark. In Mark's gospel, at least its first eight chapters, you have a scene-by-scene record of Jesus displaying his awesome authority, his religious authority over Judaism, his, his natural authority over creation, the winds and the waves obey him, his spiritual authority over the demonic realm, his governmental authority over Rome, his authority over sickness, and even his authority over death itself. And so in, in the Gospel of Mark, it's unmistakable, all authority belongs to Jesus. His life, death, burial, and resurrection, they serve as this giant commentary on the fact that all authority belongs to him. The disciples would not have disputed that point one iota. And so in these words to these disciples, he empowers them by saying, I'm sending you out with my authority. Yeah, the authority you've witnessed, the authority that you've observed, the firsthand account of my authority, that's what's behind you. The mission of Jesus, the one that he's giving them, is driven by a powerful promise the promise of his all-encompassing authority. So when the church now, 2,000 years later, when it engages this mission, there is not strategy behind it, though that may exist. Not lots of talent or giftedness behind it, though that might be there too. There's divine power behind it, the authority of Christ. All right, that's the power behind the mission. The posture the posture of the mission is seen in verse 19. It says, go, therefore. Again, the, the therefore is rooted in the authority given to Jesus. And because all authority is given to Jesus, we obey that command to go. If someone who has all authority tells you to do something, you're going to need and want to do that. But I want you to notice what is actually being said here when Jesus says, go. Go. Because we almost always read the go in the Great Commission as leave. Leave where you are 
and go somewhere else. Pack your bags, pack your house, pack your kids, learn Spanish or Farsi or, 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 or Mandarin or Hindi or whatever, cross an ocean, send prayer letters, and then come back and do a... But the go here in verse 19, it doesn't actually translate to leave or to go somewhere else. Now, it can be taken that way, and we, and we certainly have the example of those like the Apostle Paul who demonstrated a great commitment to spreading the gospel far and wide. But the language of verse 19 is such that, that go actually reads, as you go. Meaning this isn't a verse only about packing up your life and, and packing up your family and raising support. It also means as you go in your life, as you live your life, where your life is lived, you are to live on mission. It's saying as you go, you are to always be going. So see this. This is not a special command for a special group that answers a special call. This is actually a call for all of us. As you go, as you go, keep in mind that you have been providentially placed in your neighborhood, in your office, your classroom, your dorm hallway, your checkout line. You've been placed in those settings to be on a mission that has the authority of Jesus behind it. Do you know Psalm 139, specifically verses 13 through 16? If you've ever been to a baby shower or women of faith conference, you've heard these verses. And the men are like, I may have never heard these verses. Here they are. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it, knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This passage is just spectacular, is it not? And here's what the psalmist just said. He said, the God of the universe designed your life. And there are two ways that God did that. First, God put together your physical form, how you were built. Now, don't hold a grudge against him for that, but he did that. And he did that in connection with the days that he had formed for you. So he wired who you would be, and he wired where you would go. And so what I'm getting at here with this let me tell you a story. When I was a kid, my two best friends were Casey and Craig. Casey is now the senior pastor of a church in Owasso, Oklahoma, where I grew up. Craig went to Bible college and to seminary, but decided somewhere along the way that he wanted to make some money, so he went to an Ivy League law school. Now he lives in Brooklyn, and he practices law in New York City. These are two pretty different paths, but these were and still are, for the most part, my, my best friends. Casey's mom was my eighth-grade English teacher. Uh, and she was also the FCA sponsor at my junior high school. And I remember the day vividly where I walk into school early one morning. I see Casey. He's been waiting for me. And he says, hey, come with me. We're going to FCA. So I go with him to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting. And it's there that I hear the gospel. I'd never really heard the gospel before. I'd kind of been to church. Probably would have said I was a Christian. But, but no one had ever told me clearly explicitly, that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and that Christ had died for me so that I could be reconciled to a holy 
and loving God. I'd never heard that. So from that point on, I went to FCA, and every week, I'm hearing the gospel. Every week, I'm being awakened to my, my need for a Savior, and after a year of hearing the gospel preached, I put my trust in Jesus. And so now I'm a Christian, and I need to go to church, and I can't go to Casey's church because you weren't allowed to wear shorts at Casey's church, and I couldn't even process that. <laughs> so enter my friend Craig. Craig's dad is an elder at his church, so I go to church with Craig. The Bible is now being taught to me. I get baptized. I begin to read God's Word. I go to camps and retreats and mission trips. And by the time I'm a junior or senior in high school, I'm the one sharing my testimony of faith in Jesus with the eighth graders. You fast forward a few more years, I get very involved in ministry in college. Ministry becomes a passion. It's always on my mind. And 20 years later, I'm standing here doing the only thing that I've ever really wanted to do, and none of it was circumstantial. None of it was by accident. Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. Casey was my best friend. He said, come with me to FCA. Craig was my other best friend. He said, come with me to church. I'm standing here today, and I'm opening the Word of God, and I'm proclaiming it to you because my best friends growing up were from solid Christian homes, and they wanted to see me know the Lord and grow in the Lord. And as they were going, they were living on mission. And I'm a product of that. These were eighth-grade boys who impacted my life for eternity. Eighth-grade boys. My daughters are entering eighth grade this year. You know what an eighth-grade boy is good for? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Unless you're God. And then you can actually use them. And so you realize what, what thinking this way means now for your life, right? It, it means the purpose of you living in your neighborhood goes well beyond you simply living in that neighborhood. It, it means whoever you share a cubicle with at work, the purpose of that goes way beyond just work. Whoever you fly with goes beyond some random seat assignment. Your days were formed so that as you go, you get to join God on his mission. You see that? Acts 17, verses 24 through 26. Paul's preaching a sermon in Athens. And he says to these philosophers, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, God having determined, their allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. Sounds a little like Psalm 139, doesn't it? God uniquely wiring and uniquely placing people. So that, listen to how Paul finishes his sermon on Mars Hill, so that men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Again, you don't just live where you live. You have been placed there so that God would not be very far from anyone that you do life with. Think about the other parents on your kid's soccer team. You're there so that God would not be very far from any one of them. So that God would not be very far from those who you go to the gym with. Some of you lack motivation to go to the gym. Well, here's some motivation. You'll run into people there that need Jesus, so go on mission to the gym. God can be near to every one of your neighbors because he has placed you there amongst them. 
As a church, you do not exist to be an audience whose job it is to consume the religious goods and services provided by the church. No. You're not an an audience. You're an army that is to be equipped by and sent out from this place on mission for Jesus Christ. Not an audience, but an army. I've beaten that to death. So let's go to the third, the product of the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The product of the mission or what the mission produces are disciples. Now, to be a disciple, according to the English word, is to be a student. Therefore, to be a student of Jesus means to be a follower of Jesus. And the point of the command is this. The church is not merely to seek converts. It is to make disciples. And just to distinguish the two, converts, they make a decision to follow Christ. Disciples, they make lots of decisions to follow Christ. And there's a breadth to the gospel that applies here, and it's, it's that many think of the gospel as only the entry point to the Christian life. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, I'm in, boom. Now I can either not or go ahead and move toward discipleship meeting with mentors, memorizing verses, you know, discipleship, the deep stuff. And none of those things are bad things. In fact, meeting with mentors and memorizing verses, those are really good things. Our 2-7 ministry, its orientation is tonight. I encourage any of you that want to take an intentional step toward discipleship to go to their orientation meeting and be a part of that this year. You will see uh, growth happen. There will be evidence of your discipleship if you walk through that program. But what you need to know is that Christian discipleship is not like the bonus material for the Christian life. Discipleship is rooted in the same thing that the gospel is rooted, or excuse me, that conversion is rooted in, which is the gospel. What takes place at conversion is a life-altering exposure to the truth of the gospel, and therefore discipleship is an ongoing life-altering exposure to the truth of that same gospel. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, the experience is usually, I realize I'm a sinner, Jesus is the Savior, I put my trust in Jesus. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that there are a lifetime of implications wrapped up in that decision to follow Jesus, and it's those implications that are the fuel for discipleship. So discipleship is simply unearthing all the implications of the gospel for your life, and it's going to take your whole life to scratch the surface of those implications. Disciples are not a certain kind of Christian. Disciples are those who love Jesus and follow Jesus because they are stuck in the glory of the gospel. That kind of thinking, it deeply impacts then the mission of the church. It makes the mission of the church preaching the gospel in ways that compel people not just to agree with it once and move on, but to keep on agreeing with it, so much so that it shapes their whole life. It shapes their choices. It shapes their relationships. It shapes how they use their money, everything. Those are the outcomes of discipleship. I read recently that the gospel we believe determines the disciples that we make. If our gospel is robust and powerful, and beautiful, which it's my aim that it would be. And if our commitment to preaching that gospel is strong, then the outcome of the mission is going to be gospel-saturated disciples. Now the practice. That's the product, now the practice. The practice of the mission, there are actually two practices in this text. 
baptizing and teaching. These practices are very much tied to the making of disciples. Let's start with baptism. Those discipled in the gospel will see the practice of baptism as an activity deeply connected to the gospel itself. So baptism is a celebration that we do here that is a celebration of of, uh, the saving work of Jesus. So if you love Jesus and celebrate his work in your life, you will desire to identify with him through baptism. That's what baptism is. It's a public identification with Christ, your Savior. I don't know if you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip shared the gospel with this man. He trusted Christ. And the very next thing the passage says is, as they were going, which that should sound familiar, as they were going, the Ethiopian says, look, here is water. What is keeping me from being baptized? And so clearly, Philip, in explaining the gospel, has shared with him the reason and the weight of baptism, and so immediately he's wanting to observe the practice. Baptism is a public showing of your union with Christ. It's a ritual that that publicly proclaims to your church family, I have died with Christ, and I have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life because of the power of Christ. So essentially, what that makes the church is a group of baptized believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the companion practice to baptism is teaching. Teaching them everything I commanded. Remember, I said to be a disciple is to be a student. And to be a student, that implies learning. So as the people of God, we are learners. And learning impacts everything we do. Think about it. The Bible calls us lots of things. For instance, it says that we're worshipers. And since we're learners, we're always learning how to worship God in a way that pleases him. And that's important because we're, we tend to want to worship other things. It also says that we're servants. And serving can be hard. And so we're always learning how to serve more, more humbly and selflessly. The Bible also calls us a, a family. And family dynamics are tricky. So we're always learning how to knit our lives more closely together. We're also a body, and bodies can get sick, and so we're, we're learning more and more how to, how to function as a, a unified and healthy whole. And we're also missionaries, and missionary work is hard, and so we're learning more and more what it looks like to take the gospel to the world around us. What does all this learning require? It requires teaching, teaching, Henry Ward Beecher said, The church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. That's true. I like that. A huge part of any church that wants to be faithful to the mission is teaching, which is just a commitment to sound doctrine and the transfer of that doctrine from those who have a grasp of it to those who need to be more fully rooted in it. That's teaching. Those are the practices of the church, baptizing and teaching. Now the partner in the mission. As I said at the start, this mission requires tremendous spiritual power. And this is why Christ was so gracious to leave us with this final word of comfort and power there in verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reason that promise is packed with power is that the one who made it, again, you remember, he has all authority. 
And the promise here is, is not that he will be powerful and authoritative from far, far away. The promise is that he is with us, and he won't leave us. He is all-powerful, for, forever near us, all the way to the end. And so the Great Commission is sandwiched between two great declarations of grace. All authority has been given to me, and I am with you always. So as we think about the mission of the church, let's carry it out by remembering that we are sandwiched by grace with the promise of his absolute authority and power on one side and the promise of his constant presence and and, and his, his place with us on the other side. And sandwiched between those two things, we can't lose, guys. His power and his grace, they ensure our victory. They ensure our victory. And so your question is, of course, well, then how do we do it? How do we accomplish the mission? I mean, we see the power, the authority of Jesus. And we see the posture that, that we do this as, as we go and the product to make disciples and the practices to commit to, to baptism and teaching and the promised partner, Jesus, who's never going to leave us. We see all that. Tell us then, what does the program look like? How are you and the staff going to carry this out? What are you going to put together so that the church can expand and fulfill its mission? And the answer I have to those questions is I've got no program. There are no events on the calendar. There are no crusades being planned. The people in your life, the people in your office, in your school, in your neighborhood, they're not going to be reached by me. Mailers and newspaper ads, they're they're not going to bring them to Jesus. The program is you. You're the program. The growth of the church is not program-driven. It is people-driven. Jesus has said this much to us. He said the Great Commission is accomplished by people who, as they go, they act as heralds of the gospel. They're active in making disciples, in baptizing, teaching people to obey. Look at that figure there at the bottom of your notes. The heading on it is network evangelism, which is not my term. It's the term coined by someone else, but I liked what's put down here. And you can see there in that little graph that there are five categories, five networks. The familial network, it's probably self-explanatory. There are people in your family that need to know Jesus Christ. In your immediate family, in your extended family, you know of people that need a relationship with Christ. The geographical network, there are people in your neighborhood the next door neighbor, the guy down the street, those who don't have a church home, those who have never heard the gospel, those who, whose uh, cars are in the driveway on Sunday morning. There's your, your vocational network, people at your workplace that you know do not have a relationship with Jesus, are not Christians. Your recreational network, people that you hang out with, people that, that you work out with or do other sports or activities with, hobbies that don't know Christ. Think about who those people are. And then there's your commercial network, people where you buy coffee or places where you eat lunch. These, these, these uh, shops and areas that you frequent and come across the, the same clerks and, and managers, the commercial network. So now identify people in each of those networks. Maybe you don't have to do it here now, but later. Identify people in each of those networks and do at least one of the five tasks that's there on the heading. Pray for them. C.S. Lewis expressed that he has two lists of names in his prayers. 
those for whose conversions I pray for, and those whose conversions I give thanks. And he went on to say, the little trickle of transferences from list A to list B is a great comfort. Maybe you have one of those lists, people that you've prayed for that have come to know Jesus and have, and have, and have moved over and are now following him. But pray for people, pray for these people that you're going to fill in these blanks with to come to know Christ. Start there. Invite them. Invite them to eat dinner at your house. Invite them to play golf with you if you play golf. Invite them to come with you to a church event if there's an appropriate one on the horizon. Invite them. Serve them. Identify a way that you can bless those in these networks. Babysit for them. Watch their house when they're on vacation. Bake something and take it to them. You know, bring them something from Sonic after your break or lunch hour. Serve them. Simple ways you can do these types of things. Fourth, give resources to them. Okay, now we're, we're entering into a bolder category, aren't we? Ask them to read a book or an article with you. Ask them to listen to a podcast. Follow up, discuss it, see what their impressions of it are. Use that as a way to start good conversations. And then ultimately share the gospel with them. Look for, look for places where you can talk about your faith where you can let them know that you're part of a church. See if they have questions about that. Listen to their problems with actual concern. And then share some of your own struggles. Talk about how you deal with those struggles in light of your faith in Jesus Christ. Ask them what they believe. Just let people talk. We so want to go on offense that we don't let other people talk. And it's often in letting other people talk that we find the appropriate inroads to sharing the gospel. So take that. Use that. You know, rip it out, put it in your Bible, fold it up, whatever. Put it on the refrigerator. These are the people that God is calling you to go and share the gospel with. Philip Ryken, who was the, the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he followed James Montgomery Boyce, who followed Donald Gray Barnhouse. Philip Ryken, who's now the president of Wheaton College, he wrote a book called City on a Hill. It's a book about the church. And the closing paragraph to one of the chapters is this. He says, missions is not simply something that we support. All right, I'm going to read that again. Missions is not simply something that we support. It is who we are. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. The only question is, how well are you doing your job? Whom are you loving, praying for, inviting to dinner, bringing to church? There is still a great deal of work to do right here, right now, and all over the world until Christ is preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's why the church exists. That's the mission. Are you on it? Are you on it? Let's pray together. Father, as we've gathered here today, we, we've sang great songs to you. We've ascribed to you glory and, and grace and majesty and holiness and perfection. And we want to continue to do that. We want to continue to be mindful of, of who you are. Lord, we worship you. We confess before you that we are not always the people that you've called us to be. We need your grace and we need your forgiveness. But we also need your grace as fuel for this command in front of us, this command to, to go. This is intimidating at times, and we don't feel like we're up to it, but we see this, and in our hearts, we want to obey it, and we know 
we know who we need to share the gospel with. So God, we pray for opportunities. And we pray that in the weeks and the months to come, that we would come back to this place encouraging one another in the ways that we are going, encouraging one another with those we are bringing into the fold, seeing baptized and taught and discipled. I pray that that would happen here. I pray that, that we would know why we exist, which is to be on mission for you, to bring you glory, not so that we would be great. We're not great. We're not impressive, but you certainly are. We love you. Uh, we thank you for this time and this place and this people that we're here with. Go with us now. In Christ's name, amen.